Johnny Gould's Jewish State. You know, you appreciate peace if you know war. Peace itself, if you have never had conflict, if you never had that, can you really, it's great to have peace and a formality of that, but can you really feel it in your soul as much? We need to think about purpose and about values and about uh, repairing the world. My father always said that pessimist and optimist die the same way but they live different lives. I just want a little bit of peace. Peace and love. Peace and love. And he taught me to be optimistic by choice. Optimistic by choice. Optimistic by choice. Optimistic by choice. I just want a little bit of peace. Optimism is a tool. He said that pessimists never discovered any star in the sky. Peace and love. Being prepared to actually accept a degree of hardship because it's right. Because it's right. And I think that's what we as Jews have pleaded for since the war. We want people to be upstanders and not bystanders because it's right. It's right. That's wrong. That's I just wrong. Want a little That's wrong. bit of peace. Peace and love. Peace and love. Peace. Abraham Abraham Accords. Abraham Accords. Peace and love. Malcolm Green, filmmaker, innovator, storyteller. Targeting new audiences with new medium. Finding Abraham is his latest movie. How the most important diplomatic breakthrough of our age is filtering down to ground level. A montage of revelry including a dancing President Trump. But for all the fanfares on faraway White House lawns, it's the people who will ultimately maintain the peace. Finding Abraham was executive produced by Justin Cohen at the Jewish News. And Malcolm's body of work also includes Edek, a Holocaust survivor's story set to hip-hop. Think about that. You know, they shot my father, shot my grandmother, my mother died in the ghetto. Mm -hmm. They killed my brother, who was seven. Seven years old. Think about that. Edek. A young man called Edek. A Polish Catholic. He hid 14 Jews. Edek. Because in Poland, if they saw somebody hiding Jews, they would shoot them immediately. There were no questions. But Edek. Edek. This is quite an incredible man. He's a hero to hide.
advertising background, taking Howard from the Halifax to Hollywood. Remember him? Malcolm worked with Noddy Holder from the greatest rock and roll band of all time, Slade. Chris Bubbly Batter. And had the audacity to rewrite Far, Far Away for a Young's Fish and Chips commercial. He tells me he had to take a moment of silence, confessing to Noddy that as a 14-year-old, he stood on his chair at the Wembley Empire Pool at a Slade concert. But one day he'd grow up to change Noddy's words, and then Noddy would say... I like that line. It rhymes better than ours. Just half an hour long, the movie follows a journey across Israel as young Emiratis, Bahrainis, Moroccans and Egyptians get to know each other. The leaders of tomorrow, they self-proclaim. But Finding Abraham doesn't just cheerlead. There are sceptical voices alongside the advocates. Palestinian market stall holders, football coaches, bridging the Jewish-Arab divide. Well, they always did. Ethiopian Jews and LGBT society. It's been shown around the world and won awards everywhere. At the Cannes World Film Festival, a gold in Hollywood, in Paris, short film awards in London, Amsterdam, international gongs in New York, Tokyo, LA, St. Petersburg and Dubai. Listen out for how Muslims from the Gulf react to a visit to a boisterous yeshiva and the coexistence between students at Bariland's Dangor Centre for personalised medicine and even taking part in an ambulance shift. I can give my hand for a piece. On the same hand can see a knife. I just want a little bit of peace and love. There are some parameters about it which extend beyond the Abraham Accords, but they extend to Jewish society, progressive society. So if we can sort of talk about that as well, um, because it opens the door to interpretations of the Abraham Accords, Mm -hmm. and it's not even that old. um, So (laughs) Yes, yes. Yeah. And it's changing all the time. It is, it is. Uh, In the last episode, I interviewed Imam Tawhidi, who declares that the Abraham Accords is a Quranic commandment, that everything within the Quran points to the Abraham Accords, which I think are the essential pillars of where it started for people like Jason Greenblatt. Jason co-authored President Trump's peace plan, the so-called deal of the century, but to give it its proper name, peace to prosperity for the Palestinian and Israeli peoples. Since you touched on religion, I I do want to sort of uh, also push back on a question that I often get, which is, how is it that a religious man, or in the case of Jared and David as well, three Orthodox Jews were the right choice for this? And I would argue it's quite the opposite. 
religion is so important in this region um, that my being a religious person has only enhanced the conversations and the respect that we showed one another. When I have to put tefillin on, phylacteries, in any particular Arab country, um, I was only shown tremendous respect for them to find me a place, a private place to pray. My kosher dietary requirements also were always adhered to, including, by the way, with the Palestinian Authority. In one of my first meetings with them, perhaps it was my first meeting, we had a massive lunch prepared. Uh, their food looked excellent, but they went out of their way to make sure that I was properly fed. Um, I understand when they have to go pray as well. Like There's a an unspoken understanding between me and them about how religion and family for that matter, what that all means to us and why it's important to solve this conflict. So um, I feel blessed that I had the opportunity. I think my being a religious person uh, was not a negative. I would argue it was a positive. That doesn't mean that those who aren't religious can't uh, also play a, a significant role or even perhaps solve the conflict. But I uh, would say that it was not a negative whatsoever. So to go to to a movie like this from that position is incredible. Shall I start the... Uh, these, these are my notes. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, oh, good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll see if I can still read them. And, uh, <laughs> Johnny Gould's Jewish State is brought to you with Dangor Education. A warm welcome to Malcolm Green. So welcome to Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Hi, thank you very much, Johnny. Nice to be here. Because it is an absolutely beautiful film. It's it's actually like a dream sequence, isn't it? Um, you know, the music is very, very soothing, like chill-out music from Ibiza, in a way. It's got that kind of feel to it. And the stills, the slow motions, the sudden flips of change, the incidental shots of people eating in the marketplace and sort of gently breathing in and out. It is like passages from a dream, the idea of finding Abraham in this way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, th I think to an extent that's because of the audience that um, I'm trying to reach. Um, and, and I suppose it's about trying to surprise people and being different. So I think people's expectations of something which is super slick and very corporate and very formal um, and lots of handshakes and high fives and business kind of things like that. And that was the last thing really I wanted to do. And I suppose really it takes its inspiration, I guess, from um, advertising, commercials to a degree, because of my background, but also from music, you know, music videos and hip hop and things like that and stuff which maybe might be less obvious. Um, because again, these are meant to be, these are young people who the film is about. And I wanted to, to try and reflect that as well, visually. So let's scroll right to the beginning, Malcolm, and ask, what is the concept of Finding Abraham? Okay, the concept of Finding Abraham is, it is a journey and it is about finding. And in a way, that's what, um, I think we're all on a journey. And I think there are several strands to that journey in the film. So they are themes and they are quests in themselves. Um, so on one hand, yes, it's about youngsters, it's about young people, um, young people who call themselves leaders, but what is the place of young people today in today's society? Um, so that's one thing of finding, the answer's there. The other is, yes, about finding, what is the definition of peace? Um, and it is about trying to find peace in a region that where peace has been elusive for so long. Um, and trying to find that and also trying to find true peace and if that exists and what the definition of that is. 
I think it's about trying to find identity as well. Um, and I think identity and peace, they go together. You know, one of the things which I've, I've done is I, I've tried to make the audience work a little bit. So they have to kind of work at who's who. Um, I don't do the conventional, you know, documentary thing of every person. It stops and tells you who they are and what they are. So often what's interesting is audiences sometimes get it wrong. That person's Jewish, that person's Muslim, that person's that, that person's that. And often they're wrong, partly because that is what the issue is about. And also because these are youngsters who are on social media. And the film is very reflective of that as well. So I think we're trying to find society today, now, um, especially amongst this group of people in an age of smartphones, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, everything else. Peace and love. And you've done it beautifully. And of course, this idea of the Abraham Accords careering through society from the top guys that shook hands and did it from the donald trumps and the jared kushners and the kings of bahrain and uae these are different guys from a different generation to the people that you have met and talked to ashaga araro is i think Mm. the superstar of this movie isn't she yeah she's great she's an amazing you know there are a lot of people who have in their LinkedIn bio, activist. Um, And I think, you know, we use the word activist quite loosely now, Um, you know, hashtag activist, but she is an activist. She is somebody who is passionate and will spend all her time standing up for what she believes, trying to change society, trying to change people's minds. And she's, you know, I I think we've still only seen the tip of the iceberg. Very fascinating person. Hey, my name is Ashage. I think I grew up in a very, like, harsh, not, I had, like, a a complicated life, so I know what actually, what actual difficulty looks like or actually, like, what trouble looks like to get to know new people and people from a different culture. I was in Dubai a few months ago, so people who I already met and I fell in love with the country, now I get to show them my country. At the end of the day, peace on paper is from politicians, but actual peace on the ground has to be with the people. Malcolm, I've talked to many notable people about the Abraham Accords, from Jason Greenblatt, who said that it starts with identity and mutual similarities, which goes a long way to explaining why the Abraham Accords with Bahrain, UAE, and other countries is so warm in comparison to Egypt and Jordan. Egypt and Jordan were perhaps secular ideas of creating peace and stability in the era of what turned out to be the Oslo Accords, whereas the Abraham Accords is about identity and religion in so many ways, mutual similarities between Islam and Judaism. And then I spoke to Imam Tawhidi, who described it as a Quranic commandment. And that explained to me Uh, on behalf of Doré Gold, who was so influential in the Jordan deal. But he was saying, Doré was saying to me that he was um, positively surprised at the durability and sustainability of the Abraham Accords, even though Mr. Trump and Netanyahu had left office. I have been positively surprised at the durability of the Abraham Accords, that they didn't just dissipate with the departure of the American president, Mr. Trump, and the Israeli prime minister, Mr. Netanyahu. 
the uh, Arab leaders themselves had their own reasons for preserving these relationships. And Imam Tawhidi explained it, that in fact, uh, there is no barrier between Muslim and Jew because uh, we are all intertwined with one God and all the prophets in Islam belong also to the Old Testament. We are going to debate politically whether or not this land belongs to the Jews or belongs to the Palestinians. But I know the Holy Quran is the most superior text on, on planet Earth. There is no uh, Belfort Declaration. There is no... Uh, Court ruling, Supreme Court, opinion, treaties, Oslo Accords, Abraham Accords, whatever you want to call it. All of this come later. The Quran tells me God wants this land to belong to the Jews. And he wants Mecca to belong to the Muslims uh, led by the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him and his family. So I now have two options, either go with God or go with the politicians. I can't go with the politicians. I have to go with God. I have to. There's no other way. Dr. Liam Fox said it was like a football score about how the Abraham Accords was moving ahead. And uh, it, it's a way of pushing forward against uh, the people of Badwill, the murderers, the people who want to destroy. There are imperatives in the relationship which go well beyond party or personality, that we have strong mutual security interests, that we've got strong mutual economic interests, that we are innovative, creative economies and people um, who, when governments follow a more enlightened path, can actually have a greater role in shaping the world around us. It's a question of both courage, but it's also a question of vision. To find commonality between, after all, uh, the Jews of Israel and the Gulf Arabs, essentially, who, who were never at war. They'd never been at war with Israel, even if they were, shall we say, ideological enemies for the first 70 years. I think, you know, I think the fact they've never been at war is is actually really important in the whole thing. And I think it's intrinsic. And I think it's, listen, any peace deal and any accords is, is, is a positive step. And, you know, I've, I've spent quite a bit of time in the UAE before. So, you know, I've, I've been there when I couldn't get a film, previous film about the Holocaust shown, actually, um, for ideological reasons there. So I think on one hand, it's great to see a transformation. And, you know, that gives you optimism. And I think it gives you hope that actually those things we think are impossible can sometimes be made possible through human will, actually. Um, I think you touched on a number of things there. Um, one, which is leaders. So, yeah, the fact that actually this has sustained the trans, you know, a transfer of leadership, especially within the United States and also with Israel, is a positive thing because I think many people would have doubted it. Many people would have thought it was actually a, a piece of leaders who had a similarity politically, emotionally, whatever, low that you know, similar to, to actually see that it sustained that to people who are very, very different, actually, and you know, different in different ways, I think is positive. I think there is obviously a question there because. You know, this film ostensibly was about a trip that's meant to be peer-to-peer, people-to-people. And, you know, we all talk about people-to-people peace. Um, and again, what we're trying to do there is find, is that true? Is that sustainable? You know, that it's, it's, it's from the ground up. And I think Dennis Ross actually kind of explains that actually it's both. It's naive to think it's from the ground up, especially in you know some countries where, as Rotem, one of the cast members, says, you know, there is a, an influence of leadership. 
Um, and, uh, you know, so I think it's important to realize that. I think the other thing is, I have to tell you though, that I've had screenings. I, I was filming uh, some commercials for Expo recently and my crew out there, when I film there, are usually Iranian, Jordanian, Lebanese, Syrian, Palestinian, a couple of Emiratis. But I have to tell you that the passion I found for peace from the Iranians, the Jordanians, the Egyptians, has a depth that I didn't find even on the trip, actually, there. Has a depth, has a passion, has a need, has a necessity, has a hunger, because I think maybe there has been war. And I think... You know, you appreciate peace if you know war. Peace itself, if you have never had conflict, if you never had that. For most people who live in this part of the world, this is not what life is about. It's about tradition, it's about culture, it's about family, it's about community. Your family is around, your health is around, that's it, we don't need anything else. Thank you, my God, thank you. Can you really, it's great to have peace and a formality of that, but can you really feel it in your soul as much as if you have been at war and have had conflict. I don't know, I don't know the answer to that, but I did sense a, a greater understanding, a greater, as I say, hunger and thirst there that maybe a lot of people realize. So I think, you know, they're difficult peace treaties, you know, between Egypt and Israel, Jordan, it's always gonna be challenging. And maybe we look at the wrong timeline. You know, one day we'll look and we'll say, but that was a tiny window that we were judging it by. You know, I've been to both Jordan and Egypt. I've been there myself. I've been there as part of Israel, you know, filming Israeli groups. The welcome there was intense and incredible. So I have to say, I think there's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still quite optimistic about that. Those are very beautiful words. And the idea that Iran, Israel's greatest enemy in terms of its government, is in complete contradiction to the need for peace from Iranians. And we know as Londoners, there are a lot of Iranians here mm. who are dissidents, who are totally ideologically opposed, religiously opposed indeed, to their, their mullahs. In fact, there are Christians in, uh, in, in Britain of Iranian descent. There are, are gay people here who, are, who will never be able to go back as long as Iran is held hostage, if you like, by, uh, by its ayatollahs. So it is amazing that you get that vibe of peace from Iran, who are approximately bottom of the list mm. as a country to negotiate as part of the Abraham Accords, as we speak today. You mentioned Dennis Ross and the special hands yes. of Dennis Ross. Tell us about that and why you picked those parts of his body. When I began negotiating between Arabs and Israelis, and I was asked, why is this so much more important to you? I said, this is a conflict with a human face. And what you represent here is what years ago we tried to create. Peace is breaking down the barriers between societies. Peace is introducing each society to the other society. So you know the hopes, you know the fears, you see they're just like you. What you're doing here is the stuff of peace. I mean, again, it's always that thing where I, I, and I think this may be my advertising background, always thinking, how can I shoot this differently? How can we weird this up? Because I think weird is pretty good, actually, occasionally, you know? Um, 
And so when he was speaking and we're filming, I thought, it's great what he's saying, but it just looks too normal. And then I noticed that he actually spoke with his hands and they were really expressive because as a politician, he's very practiced at what comes out of his mouth. Well, you know, there, but his hands have a life of, you know, our hands, when we talk, I do it myself, they have a life of their own. And so I just was drawn to those. And we were just thinking, okay, let's just film his hands a lot. But also what happens when you're looking at his hands is you see other people listening to him. And sometimes it's in the eye of the beholder. It's is somebody listening? Is somebody actually texting on their phone or whatever's happening? Um, and I don't know, it was just one of those things that again made people just not switch off, thinking, oh, here's a politician. I'm going to pick a quote out here, which was buried deep into the narrative. People have conflicts because they have conflicts within themselves. How profound a message is that, that if you're unhappy within yourself, you can cause disruption around you for no reason? That's profound, isn't it, Malcolm? There's another going inside the soul of someone who's an enemy of someone else. Absolutely, because I think, you know, that was one of the things I wanted to explore. And I wanted to actually get somebody, I was actually looking for for somebody there who practiced Eastern meditation. Because again, I think it's a cultural buffet in a way. But I, because, you know, if you look at the Far East, you look at Japan, you look at China, there, you know, in, in terms of traditional, there's a whole notion of being at peace with oneself. And peace is a word that we use in multiple kind of contexts. And about being at peace with oneself, about being at peace with one's environment, with nature, with the earth. And I wanted to see if there was a correlation there. And yeah, there were different, there were, there were different opinions, actually. So there was Michal, who practices meditation and yoga and is a yoga teacher, who said, yeah, you cannot have peace with another person if you do not have an, an element of it within yourself. And then you've got Ayal, who's going, well, it's nothing to do with that. It's all about them. And I see a knife in their hands and, you know, all this kind of stuff. Hey, sod meditation. That's for wimps kind of thing, you know. And it's interesting getting the contrast. Um, and what, what I found interesting there was it was the wrong way round. To me, the age, because I would have expected an older person to be more cynical about you know, the inner peace and a younger person to be more open to it. And actually, it was the other way around in that context. I'm going to quote someone else as well now, Malcolm. He mentioned, we're not Switzerland, we're not Sweden, we're not even the American desert. It's different here. And that reaches out to our whole concept of news. People have conflict because of conflicts within them. I'm a very rational person. That's the way that I am born and raised, that I'm feeling my life, that I'm thinking with the next step. And we, as human beings, became great thinkers. And it evolved us to a place where we forgot the land, the ground, the foundation, the basics. We are not living in Switzerland. We don't live in Sweden. This is not uh, the desert of Texas. This is a different situation. We are living here in a different desert, different environment, different people especially different culture. Inner peace is what helps us connect to others from a whole new place. I'm seeing all my parents, I'm seeing it to my parents' friends. I'm seeing it to a lot of old people. It's very hard to keep this openness. Um, I'm 58 years old and I can do 
not just on a physical, on a mental level, but so much more than this young group is uh, capable of doing. Young people around the world just want to live their life. They want to go out. They want to you know, play around in their, next to their houses. They want to go to the park. Young people just want to enjoy, or maybe sit at home and game like how I used to. There's something greater, brighter, and much more beautiful here to share. People are judging everyone else by their own standards far too much. We are indoctrinated by our own news from our standpoint and don't understand the very fundamental differences, geopolitical, cultural, that exist elsewhere. People do apply those own values. I'm, we're seeing it now in the Ukraine and Russian war where, you know, Britain is full of sanctions while Israel sends, uh, you know, medical supplies galore and indeed a medical crew to Ukraine because that's how Israel deals with uh, with chesed with, with with its with its particular history whereas britain is about protection of its allies as it's always been there alongside the united states hamstrung as it is by nato at the moment but we've got to stop um looking at other people through our own vessel haven't we and i think that's one of the messages of finding abraham as well isn't it um okay i think it is a message but i think that works both ways because that also, th- you know, by the same token, by saying we're not Switzerland, we're not Sweden, it's all about us. It's us. Therefore, we share no character and nobody else can appreciate us. I think has an arrogance as well, though. So I think we have to be careful about that, um, because I think actually we have to sometimes look through other people's eyes and we have to, you know, and we can't, you know, there is a tendency to to almost have this attitude, which is, well, everybody hates us. So therefore, we're not, you know, then they will never appreciate us. And if everybody took that attitude, and, and it's not the same of all Israelis, actually, as well. The majority of Israelis don't necessarily have that. And I, and I also think there's a kind of danger there that makes you be so self-absorbed to an extent where actually you lose sight of yourself because you lose sight of the world and you become completely isolationist. Um, in terms of, okay, in terms of Ukraine, I think it's really interesting there because I think, you know, I never want to use a tragic conflict or a tragic war, actually, as a way of kind of selling my film or, you know, but there are, you know, there, there is a relationship. There is, you know, here you have a group of people who say, we're leaders of tomorrow. We're about, we, you know, our, our whole existence is about peace. Okay, well, if you're leaders of tomorrow, why are you doing, you know, get involved. What's your opinion? I think personally, and having been to a few meetings recently with um, even representatives of the Ukrainian Jewish community, I, I think people have to stand up and stand and, and speak out. And, you know, when people say, yeah, but it's difficult, those words resonate. And I think, shit, where have we heard that before? You know, it's difficult. It's, uh, we'd like to speak out, but it's difficult. I don't buy it. I don't know. You know, it's not my it's not my area of expertise. I'm a filmmaker. But, you know, I just think that sometimes we have to. OK, there's a thing here. Some people who, who criticize the accords and there are critics of it say it's a business deal. It's all about business. And we explore that as well. Is it about business? Well, no, it's not necessarily just about business. It's about life. It's about family. It's about, you know, and Hussein talks about that. Um, 
there is a danger that one can be motivated by finance, by money. And we're, what we are seeing is actually human people, even in this country, and I, you know, we criticise our government a lot of the time, we criticise people here a lot of the time, but being prepared to actually accept a degree of hardship because it's right, because it's right. And I think that's what we as Jews have pleaded for since the war. We want people to be upstanders and not bystanders because it's right. And there's no hardship about saying it's right. This is what's right. This is right. That's wrong. This is good. That's evil. And we have to say it's that simple sometimes. And sometimes it gets a bit complicated by the geopolitical and the economic stuff. But, you know, one of the things post-film, um, you know, and I, I've obviously kept contact with the group, who were the, you know, leaders of tomorrow, and I was talking to them about why you're having WhatsApp groups about food and this and that, but there's a war going on. And you guys told me that your mission in life was to stop war and bring peace. What are you going to do, guys? And to his credit, Matan, who is one of the central characters in the film, who is one of the Israelis who's driving and says, I don't even know if there is an Abraham. But, you know, he organized, yeah, a group and a kind of meeting, a conference between some of these Israelis and, and Ukrainians. And to his credit, he did that. But it's like, come on, guys, follow through. Um, sorry, I'm talking quite a lot about that. But I do feel very passionate about this war at the moment that's going on and about our role as Jews in this war that's going on. I'm glad you said that about the driver, Malcolm, because I came across an absolutely beautiful old Yiddish phrase yesterday about a pintala yid. And of course, the word yid in Yiddish uh, is not offensive. It's yeah. how it's used against us. And that is uh, someone who's essentially Jewish, even if they're not observant. And rather comically, <laughs> the pintala yid was David Beckham, according, <laughs> to, according to this man. And we're not going to go into the halacha of whether David is Jewish or not, although his name is David Robert Joseph, which is not yeah. bad at all, not bad at all in the old Jewish scoreboard of Jewish names. Um, but he was described as a pintalayid. So, you know, it's amazing what sparks people off on their journeys. And you and you and I, Malcolm, on the subject of being able to speak out and be the change, you know, we are lucky to have the platforms of making film and making podcasts mm -hmm. to precisely be that, to give platforms to people of peace. And I thank you for saying that as you were, because uh, this episode will follow on from the Imam of Peace, who from the Muslim Orthodox point of view said pretty much the same thing. So this podcast is about peace, just as your movie. And now we're going to talk about some challenging ideas because it makes a supposition about universalism, which Judaism isn't, it's particularist, as I think is Orthodox Islam. Mm -hmm. But Israel is inclusive. It's mm -hmm. democratic as well as Jewish. Mm -hmm. And there is, uh, I think, I suppose, the ultimate schism between the Orthodox and the secular in Israel. And you've not, um, you've not been backwards in coming forwards about how the Abraham Accords, though it may have started as a religious and business motive between our countries. But it's also on the shop floor of Tel Aviv and, and, and Haifa, particularly. It's about its application on the shop floor, about peace and love in, in a more Ringo Starr variety. 
Mm. <laughs> yes, I love Ringo. Yeah. I love Ringo. <laughs> we all love Ringo. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, that's absolutely true. And I think, again, I don't, you know, I don't see my role as kind of having an opinion there or a judgment or judging. I give both sides. Um, but I think it is really fascinating. I think that's what keeps, I suppose that's what keeps Judaism alive as well. And these are the questions probably that we're asking ourselves and are going to be asking ourselves even more now that we have, now that technology has advanced so much. This enables us to ask questions. Um, and, and I thought it was quite interesting because we went into a yeshiva, um, of which is in the, the film, and there are two aspects there which I think are fascinating. One, which is um, obviously Halel, who is very outspoken, very funny, um, has, you know, again, is an activist. She's been arrested, you know, at the Western Wall, being part of the Women of the Wall, and she has her, she's very, she's still respectful, so she doesn't stand up and walk out and protest, but she's there and she's has her opinion. And so obviously that, that, that place theoretically is an anathema to her in a way, you know, even the idea of separation of being men, you know, the machitza and things like that is to her offensive actually. Um, and then you also have obviously the guys from the Gulf, the Muslims there. Now a yeshiva is interesting because we say, well, okay, there, if you're an Orthodox Muslim, then you're going to find a kind of kindred spirit if you go into a yeshiva. Actually, often that's not the case, because the whole idea of a yeshiva is discursive. It's basically that we interpret, we argue. What do they mean by this sentence? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it this? Is it that? What do they mean? No, you're wrong. And it gets quite aggressive. And that's the beauty of it. Actually, often the, the visitors found that very difficult. Because it's a literary thing, you know, in, in terms of even the Quran. You, how much do you question it? You, you know, it's holy, it's sacred. And again, no right, no wrong, no whatever. It's all interpretation. But again, there was a kind of, it was a, uh, almost a microcosm of difference, cultural and religious difference there. How one approaches a religious text very, very differently. So I thought that was, to me, I thought that was fascinating as well and you know the kind of idea that you know to show that and you're right that even it, you know in Israel there was a multi you know it is a multiplicity of society you know there is everything and um I find that fascinating and I think that was fascinating looking through the eyes of visitors whether you know you go from orthodox, ultra-orthodox in a yeshiva to LGBT to um, somebody like Halel to a shaga to everything. Um, and that is Israel. You know, and I think that's, I think that's positive, actually. Interestingly, you, you touched on, you know, Iranians, for example, in London who are LGBT, who may be gay, whatever. I found that as well that, you know, it, we have an, a sequence in the, in the film where it's filmed at Pride and the, the actual central cast are not there because I you know, wanted to get that. And they had a real, and even afterwards, the central cast have a real sensitivity. The Israelis have a sensitivity about showing that. That was one thing which I did feel very strongly. I felt strongly in two, for two reasons. One, that is one of the most positive things about you as a society. The fact that you have one of the largest Pride Weeks in the world is something that is the envy of anybody who even knocks Israel. It's like they can, you know, put any criticism 
But that is real and it's there. And there's something in the soul of Israel that accepts that, whether it's, you know, however it's perceived. And it's such a positive. The other side was I have friends from the Muslim society and in the Gulf and who say to me, your film will probably not be shown in our society because of that. But please don't remove it. One of the reasons they were pleased about the Abraham Accords was that now, and one producer said this to me once, I can maybe now go to Tel Aviv and be who I am. That so is, what am I going to do? Cut that, that scene out? Who am I compromising then? No, you'll never cut that out. And that's right. And indeed, um, it was Chen Mazig who two and a half years ago taught me the meaning of the word pinkwashing, which is the way of Corbyn supporters and other of those ilk mm-hmm denying the idea that uh, the big um, LGBT festivals that are prominent in Tel Aviv are a way of distracting us from the horrors, the horrors of the Israeli persecution alleged of Palestinian people. There's so much to unpack in that last answer. Um, It doesn't surprise me that religious Muslims go into a yeshiva and are taken aback by the, the noise because, of course, Islam is the concept of submission to to God uh, and the Holy Quran is not to be debated. This is who we are as as Orthodox Muslims, whereas obviously Jews uh, we are in the, the the faith of not yet. You know that we we're, we're talking about these things. We're uh, we are uh, building um, upon uh, the twenty first century application of what these words mean. And you know were they different from the interpretations of the Yeshiva Bochers of the fourteenth century because they didn't have video or you know we we haven't seen so many uh, nation states built. You know there are so many things which emerge from the Torah and we're still debating them and we're still in the form of creation. Uh, we're in our special relationship as Jews with God. And even those words, as I say them, could be misinterpreted by the non-Jewish world, which is of course not my intention. And if we can move on to the idea of the Dangor Center for Personalized Medicine, I really enjoyed that part of the conversation about how peace brings about actual human advancement and uh, endeavor in medical advancement and so much more. And uh, I'm going to quote my my mum here, when uh, who is uh, the daughter of two Holocaust survivors. And when she looks at the black and white pictures of the Holocaust from her parents' generation, from the people that didn't survive and looks at them and says, you know, amongst those people was a cure for cancer. And amongst those children who were never born or grandchildren that were never born, there would have been, you know, great medical advancement, great human advancement. And that's the idea that um, Israel is a celebration, if you like, of what was left and how we rebuilt. And indeed, we're looking at amazing cures and amazing agricultural advancements in so many ways. Professor Shulamit Michaeli leads the Dangor Center for Personalized Medicine as Vice President for Research. She has a distinguished career in life sciences and nanomedicine. I'm a professor in microbiology and nanotechnology, and uh, I'm also the vice president for research of this university, Barilan University. And this is my office next to my lab. And we investigate parasitic diseases, uh, a parasite which is also present in the Emirates. The students that are at the university, are they diverse? What backgrounds do they come from? Okay, so in my group, you will see people from all over the world. 
I have Arab students, a Jewish person who came from Ethiopia. But the thing that I like about your lab, the fact that everyone's from a different background and you can all work together. I think that science, it's an international language. What unifies you yes. is, the, is the science. One of the profound dividends to come as John Medved said to me, is the trillion-dollar advancement of business between Israel and the United Arab Emirates. Our companies are busy working on joint ventures. And when you take these two entrepreneurial societies, and I'm saying deliberately two entrepreneurial societies, because the Emiratis have built this incredible uh, state, very, very modern, very, very far-thinking, whether it's sending missions to Mars or working on artificial intelligence or building food security with next generation food technology. The Emiratis are worthy partners. What has happened is that a sand curtain has essentially dropped. Okay, it's like the Iron Curtain. Back when the Berlin Wall fell, the world changed. And that's what's happened now in the Middle East. And people don't get it. This is not just a temporary blip. This is a historic trend where Jews and Arabs will no longer be known for their fighting, but be known for their cooperation and their joint leadership of the world. I think um, it's really interesting when you talk about your mum's parents, because uh, just prior to the pandemic, literally weeks before, I was in Warsaw. I was at a film talk. I had a previous film um, about a Holocaust survivor and a hip hop artist, and it was being screened there at a festival. I was getting a cab back from a bar to the hotel, and my cab driver was an Indian guy, young Indian guy, and he didn't realize who I was, you know, that I was Jewish. And he was talking about, we're going through Warsaw. And he said, Do you know what happened in Warsaw, the Warsaw guy? And I, I kind of, you know, acted a bit naive and said, Tell me. And he started talking about the Holocaust. And he said to me, he said, you know, six million Jews died in the Holocaust. But also the world, every single one of us has suffered. I said, really, how? And he said, think about the cures that would have happened. Think about the diseases we still have. Think about the children who still die. Think about the people who still live in poverty. Think about cancer that's still here, he said it would have all been cured. We wiped out, and he was talking, we as the world, we wiped out ourselves as well. And I'd never heard the Holocaust described in that universal global sense before from a guy who's an Indian cab driver. And I thought it was brilliant, actually. And it was incredibly moving and very emotional. But absolutely, the fact that he was saying, what good, you know, to, to, to cut off that good for mankind was inhuman in itself. And I found that really powerful, actually, there. Um, so I think, you know, you, the Dangle Centre, I think, is the Dangle Centre, I think, is brilliant because I think what it has there is it's completely. I always believe that you must try and remove as many barriers as possible from doing the best possible work. Um, you know, and, and on a very on a very shallow level, I remember, you know, my background was advertising, having an advertising agency and thinking, how can we allow, how can we enable um, young mothers to still have, 
to still work in advertising, to still do, because I don't want to deprive myself of their, their talent and their ability. And how can we remove those barriers? And I think that's what, as society, as humanity, we should always be doing. Remove barriers. If we need, you know, we saw it to a degree with COVID, remove barriers so that we can develop a vaccine faster than ever before. What can we take away? What can we take away? And I think that's, if, if, if that is a result of it, that's a positive thing. And I think with the Dangor Centre, that's exactly what, what they do. They remove barriers. Is there a reason why you can't come in? Well, let's solve it. Let's remove it. Let's remove every ceiling, whether it's by gender, whether it's by race, whether it's by religion, whether it's by which part of Israel do you come from? Um, and I think that's an amazing attitude, actually. You know, we have to sometimes ask, where, where does culpability begin and end? You know, so obviously, absolutely, the, 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 the perpetrators who are central and closest to it, absolutely. But then you get a stage further. And those people who um, basically even, you know, kind of turned the blind eye or decided to keep quiet, whoever they happen to be, as far removed as you know as they happen you know to get whether that was in the states whether that was in the west whether that was in the uk those people who didn't do enough who didn't say enough who didn't stand up enough they also and i think he, what he was saying as well was we all have a culpability none of you know almost as humanity as the, even him as an indian was saying even we somewhere along the line maybe we didn't do enough Maybe as a community, did we do enough? You know, there are everything. We all have to sometimes ask ourselves, and that's why, again, we're being tested again right now in Eastern Europe. Are we doing enough? You know, are we really saying enough? Let's move on to the Bahraini uh, delegation, who you got, um, you know, exclusive, um, beh literally behind the scenes pictures of them being welcomed at uh, conferences. I have to thank the people that without them we wouldn't be sitting here, uh, which are our leaders. At the UAE specifically, if they don't get the blessing from their leaders, then you don't have the legitimacy to actually talk to them and open-minded talk. I have to thank His Highness uh, Sheikh Khalifa bin Zayed Al Hayyan and His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed Al Hayyan as well as Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum. Israel, it's a free country, it's a democracy, I can talk to anybody. For taking this courageous step and bringing us together uh, w with a family relation uh, and more. And uh, there you are traveling through the desert with him and he's observing that Israeli deserts are full of solar panels and his deserts are not. You know what shocked me? I can see desert. I can see houses which are well, not in the best condition. What I saw, a solar panel, a huge solar panel. Uh, what is it doing in the middle of a desert? You know, Whenever I go to a desert where I see houses in such conditions, we don't see solar panels. <laughs> it was a scene I, I, I remember years ago watching a, um, a program by Alan Yentob on David Bowie called Crack Dacta. And it's a, you know, it's, it's one of those iconic pieces, documentaries, when Bowie was kind of in his, I don't know, it must have been the mid 70s. And he was all, you know, being driven through a desert. And he said, there's a waxwork museum. You'd think it would melt. 
in the sun <laughs> there's a and it was and it was a moment when we were kind of filming Yusef there and he went there's solar panels in the desert in the sun and it was like this and I had that kind of flashback and I thought I've got to include that as a kind of homage to to Bowie and to um, <laughs> for that but it was that thing where and again it's you know I'm not making judgments of people are different people have different upbringings he he is such a lovely guy, Yusuf. He is such a lovely guy, and but that and that that naivety, that kind of childlike naivety of what is a solar panel doing? In that? And I didn't expect when I see people in those kind of houses, why have they got solar panels? Yeah, it's great. Um, he also talks about um, you know young people. His definition of young people, and again, bless him. Young people in the world, they just want to sit at home and play video games like me. And I filmed in Africa. I filmed in Cuba. I filmed in parts of China. I filmed in really poverty-stricken places. And, you know, there are young people who do not know what a video game is. And again, it's that thing, listen, okay, fine. You're the leaders of tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> It's great to be able to have referenced Ringo Starr and David Bowie. That's a first. And now we're going to talk about football because when the Premier League brings an Israeli to the English game, they don't even know who they're bringing. One of the biggest stars to have played in England and one of the most successful, aside from Eyal Berkovich and Ronnie Rosenthal, was Walid Badir. Mm -hmm who was an excellent player and played for Wimbledon, scored at Old Trafford against Alex Ferguson's Manchester United. How very dare he? And uh, even Yakubu Ayegbeni, uh, although Nigerian, came from Israeli football. And then I think he lobbed a hat-trick into the United in the Champions League playing for an Israeli team. So he's sorted. And I enjoyed particularly, and it wasn't really covered properly, it was a bit in the Jewish Chronicle, it was about four years ago, uh, Tony Bloom at Brighton brought... An Israeli Arab, an Israeli Jew into the same roster alongside an Iranian striker. And they're all playing together. Well, of course they play together because Israeli football has always been meritocracy. You know, it's always been that. And people don't understand, you know, there's no tension in the Israeli league. Uh, and if there is, it's consigned to the dressing room and banter. But, you know, the, the fans are horrible to each other. That I've seen with my own firsthand. But when it comes to the training ground and team, the Israeli game, the Premier League, is typical of the country in its cities. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I, I think there is, a, there is a documentary about Beitar Jerusalem, which is worth yeah. seeing. Um, and I think, you know, hopefully that's an exception. Um, yeah, but Hapoel Tel Aviv are no better. You know what I mean? I mean, yeah. You know, they, I mean, I, I was in, a, I was in the Hapoel Tel Aviv Holt End or Cop or whatever they yes. call it, and they are going at them for being, you know, Muslim haters and fascists. And of course, they are the self-styled, uh, inclusive left-wing football team. And you know, they're just as rubbish as, as the other bunch as well because they're all shouting at each other. But it's not like um, football violence over here. It's nothing like Celtic v Rangers either. No. Um, it's just name calling. Yeah, yeah, no, it is. And I think, um, I think for, you know, in a way, I, God, I, I actually remember the 1970 World Cup, which I think was the last time probably when Israel were there. Um, and that was amazing. And I remember being kids and it was like really kind of, hey, 
this is great. Um, and sadly, it hasn't kind of, they didn't discover basketball. Um, but, it, it, you know, we filmed at the Equalizer, which is an amazing project. Um, and I think it's, you know, I think you're right. One of the things about football is that, yes, um, Celtic Rangers and, you know, it's impossible to kind of completely eradicate politics or tribalism from football. But at the other, on the other hand, actually, it is incredibly democratic football and it's a real leveller and it is an equaliser where class doesn't exist. You know, uh, my, my upbringing, people say, you know, I, I went to a large comprehensive school in North London um, where, the you know, basically it was Jews, Blacks, Irish, Greeks, non-Jews. And in football, we had, and I, I have to tell you, I mean, it was a very rough school. I never, ever saw any anti-Semitism, ever. First anti-Semitism I ever saw was when I was went into advertising, worked at Saatchi's. Um, but at this school, we would play, literally, we would pick sides, and it would be like, okay, Jews and Blacks versus Irish and Greeks, right, that, and then mix it up. And, do, and everybody went to each other's bar mitzvahs and parties and things like that because of football. And... It was a real unifier. There's no doubt about it. football and music. I think are the unifiers that basically they literally. Um, I'm not going to say it's colorblind because it's not actually, and that's one of the benefits. We shouldn't have to be colorblind in order to kind of have harmony in a way either. It, but it is that leveler, and I think that football has an amazing ability to build bridges. There's lots of things, you know, even for youngsters. In terms of football, the idea that you are not one person, you are among, you are part of a machine, you are part of other, and you need other people, and you rely on other people, and people need to trust you, and all of that kind of stuff with teamwork. I think football is a real builder. It's a real education to how to be a human being and live in society. I describe my podcast as life changing. Each episode incrementally makes me a deeper thinker has making a movie like this and collecting at first hand all these quotes and moments and then going over them again and again as you do editing and slow-moing and moving and oh i've got an idea i'm going to pull that picture in from tel aviv and that one over from there from from where i was before is this one of the most life-changing movies that you've made do you feel um, or do you feel that this is the culmination of a journey that now you were ready to make this one? Um, I think that's really, I think that's a great question. Um, and the, uh, okay, the genesis of the film as well, part of it was the fact that my, my son actually is, lives in Tel Aviv now. He's only 25, 26 now. And he, he went, he's actually made Alia. But he went over there to work, to start work. And of course, throughout the pandemic, my wife and we couldn't see him. You know, we couldn't be in the same. It was only by FaceTime. So I suddenly realised that the, probably the only way I can get into Israel is to make a film. So, and I was talking to Hemi Perez about this. I said, you know, peace, I don't even give a shit about a piece. I just wanted to go and see my son, you know, basically. <laughs> I wanted to make a film. I have filmed in Israel before, but there was, so there was that driver, but I wanted to, it's really, I filmed in both Israel and, and I have filmed in the Gulf as well. I've made commercials in the Gulf and I find it a fascinating society that I still struggle to get my head around at times. So I thought to actually do the both would be really fascinating. Um, life changing. Um, no, 
it changed my opinions a lot. And I found a lot of my perceptions challenged in both good and bad ways. And, you know, one has to question oneself. So sometimes, you know, a lot of the Israelis didn't act how I would be, how I would have expected. They weren't how I would expect it. The, you know, the young Israelis who are lovely guys. I mean, I really, but they were much more, they were much more right wing than I expected. And they're young and they're formal. And I think, shit, be a bit more rock and roll, guys. You know, be a bit more rebellious, be a bit more environmentalist, be a bit more, you know, and, and it, quite shocked me that that their that nature i think by by the time they'd finished with me and by the time now they're kind of raging lefties but you know it's there it, you know <laughs> we have um but that that did surprise me and i think sometimes but again i suppose that's our looking at ourselves we you know what right do we have to have a perception of Israel, for Israel to be what we want it to be. You know, we kind of look and look through rose-tinted glasses of the 60s, 70s, 80s, or whatever, and say, oh, we want everyone to live on kibbutz and never worry about money because we'll do that. <laughs> we'll do the business. Why? You know, what right do we have to kind of impose that on anybody, really? And so from that point of view, yes, I was quite surprised and taken aback sometimes by what they might have said or what they did or how they behaved. Again, lovely guys. My crew were very different. They were Israeli, but they were more, and I suppose, again, politically, being in the media, they come from different strands in a way. Um, they were fantastic. I saw people like Ashaga, people like Adelia, who was in the wheelchair. Wow. I mean, what a human being, you know, amazing. So that really gave me optimism. I found myself um, struggling sometimes, and I hate to say this from a kind of, and I don't want to be kind of reverse ageist, but sometimes saying that I found more depth occasionally and more openness amongst the older members of the cast. Hemi, the professor, the lady in Yerucham, who taught, who is a kind of almost like a relic from the 70s with a pink hat and peace signs and things like that. And a depth there, um, which I didn't find as much. And I think it's to be expected because I think the younger members of the cast were much more, they're all, they're all on Instagram, they're all on social media. It's very much swipe, 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 swipe. So it's going to be a lower attention span. There are deep people like Matan, who is the driver, who I found fascinating to me when I look think about a leader of tomorrow I think you could be a leader if you had more confidence and you're right that Pinterest thing have more belief in yourself you can be a leader you can be a leader because you question yourself and you know he comes from a religious background but then says do I think there's an Abraham no maybe I don't think there's an Abraham that conflict in, inside but I found a real power there so that that was really fascinating in terms of the Gulf visitors, it's early steps for them. It's, these are baby steps. Being able to say, what can I say? What can't I say? What can, can I express? What can't I express? Can I come? Can I not come? A lot of, you know, just before we filmed, there were meant to be more people coming. They didn't come um, for one reason or another. And there were some really interesting people coming. Um, maybe next time. But I think... So it changed my perceptions of, a, or it challenged my perceptions of a lot of people and a lot of society. I can't say it was as life-changing as when I filmed 
um, a young woman in Ghana who basically is changing the society of tribes, the way that tribal life lives there. Or the Salmon Sisters. I made a film about two girls called the Salmon Sisters, young women who basically are female fishermen in Alaska who also have a fashion, an online fashion brand who have the balance of the world of humanity because they're getting up at four o'clock in the morning to fish in the sea, but they have a digital life in their fashion brand. That's equilibrium. That's balance. That was life changing. So I wish I could say this was more life changing, but I've got to be honest and say not yet. Well, that's good. Not yet. There's that Jewish concept of not yet. Absolutely. We're all working on it. And finally, Malcolm, I'd love that to have been the last answer because it was uh, quite profound, but I got another one. And it goes like this. This is the final one. Finding Abraham and the Abraham Accords becomes even more important at this moment because Israel is now facing a new threat from Palestinian terror on the streets. We dealt with suicide bombs on buses by building a wall. We have Iron Dome to protect us from the Iranian bombs from Gaza. Now we have Bataclan-style executions on the streets. I think that's the best way of describing it for our non-Jewish audience and Shabak and the Israeli police. And indeed, bystanders who are armed are able to deal as quickly as they can to make sure that these massacres don't carry on for hours as they did in France and in Paris that terrible night. How do we get through this? What's the message? How will peace and love defeat the terror? Will we ever see a true end to this schism between those who hate and those who love? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I have to be, I am optimistic. Um, and again, I think part of this film made me makes me optimistic because as I said before, I've been and filmed in you know Gulf countries where I couldn't get a Holocaust film shown because it justified the state of Israel, you know, things like that. That's not so long ago. That's not so long ago. To move to a position where actually the Holocaust Memorial Day events there is a big transformation. And it means nothing is impossible. And I believe nothing is impossible, but you have to, I just think there has to be engagement. If you look at the Abraham Accords, and it's a very short document actually, um, probably because, you know, Trump probably couldn't read the whole, you know, longer document. So it's only going to be a short document anyway. But um, it, it does say that the parties agree and sign up to addressing the Israel-Palestinian conflict. And the thing about the, the Abraham Accords, it says you have to address, you have to talk, you have to negotiate. You have to also accept that we have to accept other people for being different. And you have to compromise. You have to come to some area of compromise eventually. I look at it and I think, and especially now with a son who lives there, and I don't know whether he lived there his whole life, and I think, how can him or, please God, you know, grandchildren, if I have grandchildren there, how can they be safer? What is the way to be safer? It has to be, it has to be coming together. Like the Abraham, you know, we've got a road trip of people from different backgrounds who once hated each other, were taught to hate each other, and they're going around together. I wish there were Palestinians on that trip, actually, Johnny. I really do. For one side or the other. And there was no outreach hand from the Israeli side, nor from the other side. 
But eventually I'd love to do that because then, then you go, right, now we're on the way. And something like the Equalizer, those projects, Bangor. So though you're right, we are seeing examples of terror. What we did see and what I saw when we went round as well, even outside of the trip, was I saw examples of actually where people are working together. There's a great project. There's a great um, organisation called EcoPeace, run by an amazing guy called Gideon Bromberg, who I really wanted to involve in this film. And they are basically Israelis, Jordanians, Palestinians, and now Emiratis. And they are dealing with water poverty. They are turning the Jordan River. They are turning the direction of it, its flow, the other way around in order to help. They haven't got time for terror because they got so much work to do together to do something. And those that's happening around as well. So I think, you know, we have to learn from those and also learn from the bad. And ultimately, good has to defeat evil. Malcolm Green, a vibrant movie to reflect a vibrant region. It is absolutely beautiful. Finding Abraham is now available to watch. Thank you so much for joining me on Johnny Gould's Jewish State. Thank you very much. Real pleasure. Great to talk to you. Johnny Gould's Jewish State is brought to you with Dangor Education. I just want a little bit of peace and love.